Good day, this is Shane Hasty for the InfoCube Culture Podcast. I'm at the Agile India Conference in the glorious Taj Hotel in Bangalore. We're sitting out in the, in, in the gardens. You can hear the birds singing in the background. And if you hear somebody splashing in the pool, uh, it's not us. <laughs> I'm sitting here with John LeDrew. John, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Before we get into things, would you just introduce yourself, please? Sure. So I've been in the software, I guess, working in the software space, largely the web space for coming up to 20 years now. Um, Over that time, I kind of started very technical. I spent the first kind of 10 years very much in software engineering and doing all of the things we know about software engineering. And then over the sort of 10 years since then, I moved into consultancy and I slowly moved from doing very technical consultancy to less technical, but certainly more focused around people and human beings first, essentially, Mm -hmm. and kind of recognizing that I think I recognized that the problems I was solving for my clients were not their technical problems, it was their people problems, that they needed the people bit detangling first. I used to say that I, I help you solve your technical problems by untangling your people problems, and that was that was how I kind of realized that was the natural flow of my work, and I actually didn't really associate what I was doing with the Agile community until about 20 16 really I was doing agile things and I was aware of it but I wouldn't have called myself a coach or an agilist and now I'm, I'm working as a coach um, through industrial logic at, at Ford at the moment anyway as, as well as a few other things you gave a talk here entitled diversity chocolate and safe cracking do tell <laughs> okay so um, I got very interested in the topic of diversity mainly after reading a number of studies that were talking about how problem solving kind of creative teams working together to get better outcomes with less homogeneity you know the more heterogeneous the team the better the outcomes and I also speak on psychological safety and that tied really interestingly for me it resonated because of the links between psychological safety so people say okay well you've got a group of people in a team And if they're all completely different, if they're all different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, genders, whatever, um, then you have all of this conflict. And it was like, and it's it's true, you know, there's there's plenty of research that says that you get a group of different people, put them together, they are going to have greater amounts of conflict. But they still produce better outcomes, despite the journey being more of a struggle to get there, in essence, the outcomes are, are improved. And what I loved about that was actually, it's no different from any team is that you need to create a safe environment for conflict to to occur you need to have that so I I got kind of interested because of that relationship and I got into a conversation who was I talking to I actually can't remember who I was talking to now it was about middle of last year and we were discussing why is it like what would be an interesting way to present to really demonstrate very viscerally the link between a group of people coming being able to approach a problem from different perspectives what was a kind of very visual and kind of practical way that we could discuss that topic and we kind of got talking and I got kind of into this idea kind of what if there could be some sort of problem or puzzle you could present that it was only possible to solve if you had people viewing it from different angles you know the 3d thing and eventually after much 
messing around and me cutting out lots of bits of cardboard and other things I ended up with this idea of what is a, a clear perspex safe and I'm, I'll share you some photos of it from the, uh, the sessions you can show because it's, it's hard to explain you have a clear perspex safe it's probably about a one cubic foot and it's attached with four coloured bicycle locks with five digits each and on each side of the safe there are coloured stickers and it, they're just coloured stickers and they'll have like there'll be a pink one and it'll say one and then 157 on it for example and then another one there'll be another pink one that says two and 29 for example and that'll be on another side on another edge so there's kind of all of these stickers on there and all I do is I basically tell people I initially bring them up and I say all right so what I'd like you to do is uh, stand in front of the safe uh, based on the colour of the sticker. So when people come in, they all get a coloured sticker, or they choose one. So you end up with people stood all around it, and the only way to solve this safe is to look at what you've got in front of you and communicate it to the people around you. So you will know one person will have all of the, the codes. And the argument is, is that if you only approach that, if you're all one colour, so if you're all very homogenous, then you can't actually see the, you can't approach this problem from all of the angles. You, you don't get all the information you need. Whereas if you can approach it from all the angles, you get it. And obviously it's fun. We play some silly Mission Impossible music. I make cracked jokes about them all being bank robbers and well-practiced. And then eventually we end by throwing chocolate at the audience. So it's an altogether excellent way to explore that problem. So yeah, so that that was the it kind of started with this idea of of an exercise and doing this kind of very a practical exercise because I I've always learnt by doing and and I find if I can get on my feet and do something it's more interesting. I also find if I'm speaking I if I'm doing a session more than once, which most speakers hope to do, uh, talk much multiple times, it's just made more interesting if I have a, a thing that naturally introduces difference in the way that it in the way that it works. So I often do that. So it started with that, and then uh, you we also begin to explore things like cognitive biases. Mm -hmm which are a wonderful thing. I find them wonderful. People find they're very depressing to some people because they look at it and you go, wow, there's all of these biases that, that kind of they're, they're an evolutionary thing that, that basically makes us all genetically broken. <laughs> uh, and, and I kind of find it quite humbling myself. I think that there's something that you need to be very mindful of um, and that mindfulness is really critical. But... There's something very humbling about kind of knowing that actually we've not changed much in 30,000 or more years of evolution. We're, we're inherently, there's very little change and it feels like such a long time. In fact, Linda Rising and I were talking yesterday and whenever she talks, she also speaks on cognitive biases quite a bit. And she says, sometimes people are just like, but it's such a long time since the Stone Age or the cavemen. And it's like, well, actually, if you were a, a mayfly, you know then that's a really long time that's that's thousands and thousands of generations but actually based on our average lifetimes it's not that many generations away and that's not that much time for genetic change to occur so you have these this it, the cognitive biases represent this inherent conflict between our uh, non-evolved uh, lizard brain and and our uh, conscious social behavioural brain, the brain that we've grown up to learn how to do things like build this amazing canopy or the swimming pool or the cultural biases, you know, that mean that uh, British people feel really awkward when the unbelievably uh, helpful uh, Indian uh, staff in this hotel are incredibly uh, hosp uh, hospitable and, and want to offer everything to you, but we feel 
immediately awkward in that context. And considering most of that has its basis in, in British colonialism, it's somewhat ironic that we now come back and feel really, really awkward in that setting. Um, but I, I, and they're those things that those behaviors that we learn on top. And, and so we, we explore essentially how cognitive biases affect the recruitment process. And why is it that you have people and groups of people, and many these days, most people, you know, most people, thankfully, we live in a world where the majority of people are not homophobic, misogynistic, or racist in general, in, 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 uh, in most kind of developed developed countries they're not uh, common traits thankfully um, and yet and yet we still have uh, the gender pay gap we still have massively disproportionate representation um, of in America of uh, African-American people in certain in certain parts of the uh, in certain certain industries um, we have massive underrepresentation of women in the executive boards of most organizations and uh, you know and the fact that statistically there are you know that there is a very large proportion of men called dave uh, leading most of the large organizations in the world uh, john is also popular although that doesn't include myself sadly i I'm, I'm, <laughs> i i haven't benefited from that apparent bias towards promotion to uh, to high executive uh, high powered uh, well-paying jobs but it's like the the interesting thing there is that there is this bias so why is there if most people wouldn't wouldn't say you know whatever i'm a i'm a raving racist or whatever else if the majority of people don't claim that and the majority of people we believe are not you know harboring deep racist ideas yeah, yeah we we all like to think that we are fair and decent and we we, we, we care about the diversity and so forth yeah. precisely so why is it then if we're all here caring deeply about this topic that we still end up hiring people that look like us essentially you know we are both sat here you know we're both white males with beards you know so there's a huge amount of affinity between us right now uh, you know and that is an interesting uh, thing so why is it that we still end up hiring people People like like us and one of the things that, that I discuss is, is this idea of, of we have a bunch of these biases that mean that we will feel essentially an affinity towards a particular candidate so that starts right from the moment you have that particular CV in front of you and you're going through the CV and, you, and your subconscious brain this isn't a conscious process remember will say oh look this guy's called John as well well I immediately feel a lot of love for this person. And what's more, that means there's a higher chance that this person is also a white male like me. We're going to have so much in common. This is going to be great, you know. Let's let's do this. And then we keep going down, and I find out that this guy called John just happened to go to university in the same place I went to university. Oh, that sounds amazing. I wonder if it wonder. I wonder what year did you know? I can't because he won't have his date of birth on his CV, but you know he has his graduation year. So I'm thinking, I reckon he was in the same year as as me. I wonder what he was doing. Was he? Oh, he was doing psychology. Wow, that's really interesting. Ah, so so I wasn't doing psychology, but you know what? I think I think he was in the, the so most of his classes were in the hallway just over. I reckon he knows Professor Smith, that weird guy with the funny hair. I wonder if we can exchange some stories. That'll be cool. And I go down and go, oh wow, he likes he likes computer games on his interest section. Oh, this guy's great. Okay, so by this point, it's like we have this subconscious point scoring. It's like you know, same same gender, same name. You know, uh, ding ding ding. I actually once worked in a team uh, in the UK where uh, there was it was an IT team 
um, the IT manager and six of the eight members of the team were in fact all called John, including myself, who was a recent hire. Uh, I didn't realise that was a selection criteria until after I got there and, re- and was introduced to the rest of the team. <laughs> but that manager would say he didn't do that? Of course he didn't. Uh, and 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 that it might not have even been him, I don't think, in fact he only very briefly interviewed me but that there's so there's a bunch of biases that come in so we go through this process and like in this example this guy called John who I'm obviously in love with because he's got he's so much like me just on paper and then I might give him a quick phone call and in the five minute phone call we have uh, because actually I'm more interested to know about his whether or not he knew knew the weird Professor Smith and if he said the same weird anecdotes that he did when I was in his classes Uh, we we then bond over that yeah he did know this guy but he actually was in a different year to me because he took a year out it's okay and we we kind of still know a lot of stuff and we go through and then I discover that actually he grew up near me in in this in a town down the road and our parents knew each other through the Rotary Club and and we both have a cat called Mog and it's just wonderful you know by this point he's now got like 10,000 points in my subconscious brain and we've only had a five-minute phone yeah. call on I've read his and we have not talked at all about his competency we for the role spoke at all about his competency for the role because obviously that's the technical test we'll do in person when I invite him in which I'm definitely doing now because because this is love basically so this guy then arrives he obviously comes in and then I everything is then backed up so I see him and go well you know what I thought he was a white male just like me and look at him he's a white male just like me and he's got this bright orange ginger beard we can bond over that ginger beard you know we can exchange grooming tips and everything he's not even sat down at this point my brain's in overdrive with how similar we are it's amazing maybe he has curly hair just to add to that and then he sits down and as he sits down I notice he's got brightly coloured socks I really love brightly coloured socks so he's like well in there at this point and we still haven't discussed competency because he's only literally his bum has just hit the seat like we've barely even begun this interview so we clearly start the interview with important topics like you know a little more a few more anecdotes of professor smith and did he ever come was it actually he may have even come to our house for christmas dinner we discover through some conversations over the years when he was young and and we, we keep getting through and now eventually we start talking about actual competency things but i'm already convinced he's right by this point so we go through and he says all of the right things you know and uh, and by the end of the interview he's hired you know, he starts the next day he's in um and he's introduced to all of the other uh, brightly bright sock wearing white males with ginger beards and curly hair who are all called john in the team <laughs> obviously um we think this is the best team ever we all get along really well it's so meetings are so easy that, that we just agree on stuff all the time it's so smooth um and so what, what I like to do is kind of explore why that is. And there's a bunch of cognitive biases that come into play. So you've got a thing called affinity bias. And this is when we just discover similarities. It feels nice to discover you have something in common. Yeah. We both have a beard. Absolutely. But that's immediate a, a bonding <laughs> exactly. thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's sort of, this is also why when you go to conferences like this, if you're an agilist or you're a software engineer, you go to conferences and you suddenly think, I love everyone. Everyone loves coding. This is amazing. It's like this wonder. You, and you come away feeling great from these yeah. conferences because it's great hanging around with people that have similar interests. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, you know, liking your peers in, in work either. There's nothing wrong with, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with even using whether or not you feel you like someone as a, as a thing of whether or not you might choose to hire them. If it's a small team, 
that's not a terrible consideration. You still have to do it consciously. So you need to think, actually, wait a sec. Have I let this sway what I've been doing? Am I only liking this person because he has a beard like me? Or am I actually doing it? And it, and it sounds really petty when you phrase it like that. Um, but actually, it is those tiny little things that, that subconsciously can sway us in that favour. Um, and there's a bunch of other, other interesting biases that then often compound that issue. So there's a thing called the, the halo effect. And the, the halo effect is when something is wonderful about this person so this can be it can be the initial bias kind of the amplified the i have a really massive affinity for this person so nothing they can say could possibly be wrong but it's actually also things like um it could just be you're speaking to someone and then you're impressed by the fact that they uh, wear a really sharp suit you know it's that first impression thing so they arrive and you think wow they look pretty sharp that's good now if that's the sort of thing that, that you value then you might immediately think that that's a a big tick and that huge green tick that you've just written on your notepaper for the interview is going to halo. If you imagine you end up with this glow around you for everything else that you ask them. And you'll almost see this positive light on everything else. The other kind of the opposite of that and the other side and the sort of the, the dark side is you also have a thing called the horns effect. And the horns effect is the exact opposite. It's you come in and someone's actually saying all the right stuff. But maybe they have quite a strong accent and that's really distracting for you and that's going to mean that you kind of downvalue, disvalue or devalue almost everything they're saying the things they tell you the things they say the answers even if the answers are great you're going to apply less value to those answers because of the the effect the if you imagine the opposite it's like a, a the bad halo <laughs> the, the negative halo um and that is, you see that a lot in situations where you will be doing technical interviews and you'll see your technical interviewers come away and they say, yeah, this person, they, they, weren't, they weren't that impressive. And you kind of, and, and you'll look at it and you kind of think, it's interesting, you'll often see that, that come away from people because actually the person is, uh, is foreign, perhaps, they're an immigrant, they have a stronger accent. And, and that's one of the important things to say here as well, is if you're hiring someone for an English-speaking role, it is not... Um, biased or racist to choose to not hire someone because their English skills are not good enough. That's very different from having an accent. Uh, it's a very different thing. That's it's not about. Um, it's actually not to do with just you know if they if their vocabulary is very poor. Well, that's a perfectly reasonable <laughs> thing to not hire them for a job in central London where the team is is largely English speaking. Um, so you you know that and that's a valid thing in the same way that I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect as an English speaker with absolutely no uh, level of proficiency in any other language particularly to go and get a job in Germany where I was expected to work with a German team. It just, it wouldn't be expected and there's nothing wrong with that because language is just a skill, you know, that's, that's yeah. a competency. So you also have a thing, and what I tend to find is, is if you imagine these biases, they, they affect each other. So one of the, an interesting one, there's two ones that can work. One that we will have heard of called confirmation bias. We've heard mm -hmm. of this one. And this is where, you know, you've, you've uh, decided on a particular course of action or you'd like, you've had a, come up with a hypothesis and then you're, you're literally blind to the evidence that shows against that. 
there's also a thing called choice affinity bias. I might have the name of that slightly wrong. And I think choice affinity bias. And this is where you've made a decision and you feel good about the decision, even though there's evidence in the contrary. Like you've just bought that phone and that phone that you've been kind of looking at, you kind of really wanted it. You bought the phone. The day after you, you buy the phone, you get the paper and you open it and there's a review for your phone. And it's a slating review. They're going, ah, oh, you know, the screen just isn't, isn't as good as that other model and uh, that it's a little bit sluggish when it's starting up and it should be much better. And you just think, well, I've never had any of those problems. I think my phone's amazing. You know, it's brilliant. Knowing that actually the first time you turned it on, you thought, yeah, it's a little bit sluggish, you know, maybe. And and then the last time you sat next to me, you thought, my, my screen just isn't quite as bright as the person next to me. Oh, and But you, you won't see that and you'll feel, you'll make yourself feel brilliant about the fact. And it's the simple fact that you made a choice. So you feel good about that choice. <laughs> and uh, regardless of, of what happens now, if you imagine how both confirmation bias and choice affinity bias if in the course of this interview or that whole recruitment process, you made that subconscious decision that, you know, curly haired, bearded John was definitely the right person for your, for this job, regardless of all of the other stuff, then those two additional biases are only going to make you feel much better about that decision. And they're going to stop you from being able to see and see the answers they might give that might potentially make them seem less appropriate it's going to make you consciously downplay or subconsciously downplay uh, responses that might make them seem not just a little bit inappropriate but really unsuitable for the role potentially uh, you might not even be aware of you might not even notice that they've um, they've answered some technical questions incorrectly you might be you might have a technical test and literally not see the incorrect answers particularly when you might not notice them because you're literally focused on the, the kind of supporting and confirming the, the areas that you've had so that's the uh, a long rambling introduction to these things but these things I think you can you can see to me I wanted to explore why is it then if we're if we're all largely you know ethical not racist human beings this is actually why and one of the, an interesting study done by Cheryl Sandberg showed that when she interviewed executives and executives that said uh, I, don't, I don't I'm not biased at all I, I'm not racist I'm not, you know I don't have any of these biases um, compared with people that said, I know I have biases, I know they're inherent to who I am, and I'm aware of them. The people that said, I don't have any biases, performed worse when, uh, in, in, when interviewing people and demonstrated more examples of biased behavior. Um, so it's, it, it's the, the way to counter these things, and that's the first thing you hear is people like say, okay, so you've told us we're all completely screwed and we do these things inherently, and it's our lizard brain and we haven't changed in 10,000 years. How can we deal with this? You know, and the the answer is 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 well, you can't get rid of our biases. We can't reprogram our, our instinctive brains. That's that's you know, hopefully will happen over time. Maybe you know, maybe in ten thousand years, maybe we will have less of these biases. Um, or different or different biases most likely different I think is probably is probably more likely I, I would say. Yeah, the point is is that actually what the evidence shows is an awareness of those biases increases your your kind of resistance to the effects of them it doesn't stop them from happening but being very mindful and sort of saying hang on okay wait a sec taking it slow um that there's a people may be aware of the book thinking fast and slow mm -hmm. um, and and this is the these biases essentially they, they live in the, the system one brain you know, they're in our system one in our fast brain and actually by slowing it down having a conversation with a colleague 
about your rationalization for hiring a particular person. That conversation, so as soon as you verbalize something, it brings it into the system two brain. And by doing that, it forces you to rationalize your thinking. And then suddenly you're like, so I really like John because he has a wedge sack. No, I can't. I don't like him. Do I really like him because he has a beard? Wow, that's weird. Why did I say that? Okay. No, I don't like him because he has a... Wait a sec. Did I really... Did, why do I like him? <laughs> you know? Right? He got all of the... Yeah, so he got all of the questions wrong. God, he's not... This guy, John, is not very competent. I don't think he's... Uh, don't, maybe... No, you're right. No, sorry. Sorry, Jenny. I'm, we won't hire John. Forget that. I will send in the next candidate. Forget that. You know? God, I really thought I loved that guy. God, you know? Mm-hmm. But actually that process of rationalizing the, the decision. Um, but another thing you do is, is just bring someone else into the interview. So one of the, we discussed the benefits of diversity in addressing problems from both perspectives. When faced with a complex problem like, should we hire this person? Is this person right for our team? Do they have the needs? That is a complex problem that is benefited by pairing. Like lots of things in the Agile community. Let's do it by pairing. But what you one thing you, you should do there is consciously choose someone that will address this from a different perspective. Don't bring in someone that's only going to support your biases. You know, I need to find someone who doesn't have beards, is likely to be a female, ideally represented in a minority that I'm not part of. Um, And that means that stops my biases. So it means I'm not then literally just sat there with both of us co-supporting each other's biases you want someone that's going to be challenging that in fact it's good to have someone that won't automatically have affinity bias with that person almost pick someone as an interviewer as a co-interviewer that has as little in common with this person as far as those sorts of things as possible you know um, because they're less likely to be affected by those things and by being conscious about that you can you can have some successes, I think. Um, I mean, this is no, there's no science here. Um, the, the other side that I've, I've done a lot um, and something I've been experimenting with is actually using flashcards. So you print out the biases, find the biases. I mean, the ones I, I've only mentioned a few in this interview, but the you, there's about eight yeah, or nine. There's a beautiful are, Wikipedia yeah, oh, article codex. with yeah. 68 biases, yeah, so, I think, in a codex. Absolutely. So we'll, what, we'll include a link to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. well worth it. I, I reference it in the in the talk as well. It is. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. Actually, I'm looking for getting a large print of that for my wall at home because uh, mm. I, I like the humility that that. Uh, subconscious biases bring us but one of the things is 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 actually produce flashcards the ones that directly affect well a number of them will affect recruitment but the ones that i mentioned so the horns effect the halo effect confirmation bias conformity bias so that's when that's the that's what could happen once you have a team full of johns they're all johns they're all white males and the original manager john who's now not involved with recruitment but the other two johns are interviewing a candidate called john and they decide to hire john because he seems to conform with all of the johns in the group if there's enough johns there in that last sentence then uh, then i <laughs> um, so that's another thing uh, storytelling is much better with heterogeneity if all the characters are all called the same name and they come from the same background the stories are much more boring uh, storytelling is important in in teams so um one of the things there is, yeah, is there's, you have conformity bias, the affinity bias that I mentioned, and confirmation bias. And they're the ones that are most prominent, I think, in in how they affect recruitment. But you produce some flashcards, just a brief description. Like you said, you can find these on Wikipedia and other places. And literally laminate them. And before you undertake any activity, whether it's reviewing CVs, whether it's interviewing someone, a telephone interview, is you literally just read through them. 
and remind yourself that, remind yourself that these things exist. And even now, even if you are someone that has been doing recruitment activities every single day for a week, okay, every single day, you come in in the morning, before you start looking through that pile of CVs, is just read through them over your coffee, just read them again. It sounds boring and repetitive, but what it does is it brings your awareness of those things to the top of your mind, um, which is exactly where they need to be in order for you to be able to kind of catch yourself in the act. So moving out of the system one to the system two. Absolutely, precisely. And that's where you you gain benefit. Now, it's interesting that one of the things that we often, you'll often hear and you'll say is, is, is that actually trusting your gut is is kind of the wrong thing to do in the recruitment process. But at the, but at the same time, it's not always the wrong thing to do. And this is the problem with cognitive bias. It's like, if you read up and you look at the cognitive bias codex, which is the, the graphic we were talking about, you go through and you just think, if these are all my system one thoughts, you know, this is all my kind of system one thinking, this is all of in that space, and they're largely, you know, this is the quick thinking, we're doing it subconscious, this is literally the definition of, oh, my gut feeling tells me this then the interesting problem there is is does that mean that our gut feelings are always wrong and actually they're not always wrong they malcolm gladwell's book blink uh, precisely they're really not always wrong in fact when we talk about things like the wisdom of crowds um there's been so many studies showing for example you know there was a um I think it was a study of naval captains where they were estimating the position, trying to find the position of a downed submarine. And they asked, um, uh, I don't know, there was about 50 naval captains to study the study the, the data that was on there and basically stick a pin in a map, like pin the tail and go, where do you think this is based on what information we know? None of them were right, but the average of all of their answers was correct within three meters, I think, of the location of the sub. And that was a gut feeling. They didn't really have enough information to allow their... So we are not wrong all the time in fact we're often right the thing is is we have to be mindful of that so this is something that um, linda rising and i were talking about just just yesterday finally sat right here <laughs> and we we were just this must be a good place for this kind of thought and we well, one of the things we're saying is actually is that we actually don't utilize our system one brain enough you know we but it has to be a mindful decision to jump into that place it has to be mindfully is when you're sat down you're working on a programming problem or something and you feel like you just can't do it anymore you just i can't stare at this code anymore i can't I, ugh, i'm stuck you know that's a very good time to consciously say you know what i'm going to step away from the screen and do something else i'm going to go and make a coffee i'm going to go for a walk i'm going to do something else and that is me consciously taking that problem from my system two brain and passing it over to system one to, to incubate as the uh, um, wallace would say to let it incubate let our brain uh, subconsciously process it and then that'll be the moment when you're you know you might not go back to the task that day you go home in the shower yeah you're in the shower and suddenly you're like ding you know whoa wait a sec that's the thing all right and then then you kind of like end up running into work and desperately trying to yeah. to fix the thing not straight from the shower uh, not straight from the shower although you know passion can take people in strange ways it depends which country you're in you know <laughs> uh, it's really warm here you'd actually step out into the house you wouldn't notice in, in the uk at the moment it's minus four you'd notice pretty quickly if you ran straight from the shower it's the 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 the, uh, the the icicles from from your chin and your earlobes and uh, and, and other places that really uh, that really give it away <laughs> yeah. yeah you've given us some reasonably concrete advice in terms of how to prevent bias in the hiring process how about for these diverse teams where there is potential for more conflict and where in many ways we want that conflict how do we make that conflict healthy so it, 
this is where I'm very <laughs> biased towards valuing. I value massively facilitation training in uh, in coaches. Not as many coaches or managers or leaders, for that matter, had facilitation training in any way. Almost any course that specialises in facilitation uh, is going to be of benefit. And um, I personally did the ICA course called Facilitation Methods, I think it's called, but I might be wrong. I'll check it and confirm for the uh, for the for the link. Um, now I took this course, it's, and it's literally it's a two or three day workshop, and it's not a very deep deep dive into facilitation. I've done a few other things, but that was actually the first kind of like you know kind of first very professional interestingly ICA they um, you know yeah they do a lot of work with teams and things but actually a lot of their work as a charity is you know is facilitating in uh, you know war negotiations they've done some work in various African countries where they've been at war for many years they Israel and Palestine so these these are quite deep grained conflicts I would hope that most software teams are not like you know uh, are not like the West Bank uh, in general. <laughs> would I, um, I would hope not. I, uh, I I can hear the listeners kind of go, hey, "You haven't seen my team," but I would suggest there's a, a potential over exaggeration there. Uh, from, from what I've I've seen on the news anyway, I've, I've l- I'm lucky enough not to work in any teams that are quite are quite like the West Bank. So conflict when we discuss it, I think that you know. <laughs> There is always going to be disagreement. So the, the method, for me anyway, is as a facilitator, you need to ensure that everyone has a voice. So make sure, and, and sometimes, if you, especially if you have a particular mix, if you have a bunch of people like me who are big loudmouths and dominate all the conversations, then um, then it's going to you know you need to work on that with the team and 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 work on defining values that allow them to get, grow for respect and, and and allow each other to have that space. When you have those teams, it's it's about facilitating and allowing those fo- the voices to be heard. When you identify divergent opinions within you know within the team, bring that out immediately. So that's interesting. You know that that's different from what Jane said before when we were talking about this. Did, Jane, what what was it you said before? And just make sure, just in case. That that wasn't heard loudly enough amplify it a little bit get it out there and that is actually at the beginning that's technically increasing conflict that's bringing it out that's that's making sure that if there is a divergent opinion let's explore it and it doesn't matter if it's just one person in the team or if it's everyone has a different opinion it, it, that conflict should be addressed head on and then as a as a facilitator most of your work really is in is in building that safe space and building psychological safety which is one thing we, we were discussing before which is uh, which is building that safe space which is largely just about respect i mean goodness that there are practices that you can use there i mean if it's if the team is lacking in respect and they talk over each other and goodness you can use things like the you know use a talking stick have them pass mm-hmm. a ball around or something and you can make it quite energetic i mean i've done things where you know you play catch you have to chuck the ball around and get everyone on their feet and and everyone thinks it's really weird but they don't notice that they're still communicating better regardless of how weird it seems um there are also practices that you can do to just build the kind of the social capital within within the team um an exercise that i uh, i did recently with my with my team at ford that i have it's one of those magic exercises that I think, as, as Linda and I described, we're believers of this one. So this is one from uh, a book by Norm Kurth, uh, the Project Retrospectives book. Um, yeah, someone who has, yeah, who has given so much to the community and it's such a, a tragic story from, with Norm. But he, um, he has an exercise called Showing Appreciations. And with Showing Appreciations, you will sit down. I do this kind of religiously at the end of most retrospectives. 
and we, we sit down, we sit in a circle, and you and I might stand up, and for example, I'll often start it, and I'll often say, um, guys, I really, really appreciate you being present today. I really appreciate you coming to the retrospective and engaging in the exercises, uh, regardless of how weird they were. Um, I really, you know, I really appreciate every contribution. Thank you so much. And that's me addressing the whole team, okay? But actually, I could also um, address someone individually, or, or someone else can address someone else individually, and say, you know, Mark, I really appreciate the other day when you spent that, that hour with me just after lunch and explain to me the microservices architecture I, I was completely lost and you really helped me find my feet with that thank you so much and what's important is that uh, in this case Mark fictional Mark um, is he can stay silent and kind of quietly blush to himself if he wants to or or he can say thank you but he's not allowed to say Dad, it's just part of my job you know I was just doing my job you know there wasn't anyone else that could help you know I, I just I just did no he has to receive that appreciation and what's important is that that's actually both um, a kind of a almost a forcing function but also it's a uh, it's actually an act of respect for the person showing the appreciation because when you say dad it was nothing it's like no it wasn't nothing I've just told you it was it meant something it meant something to me um, and actually, you, what you end up with, with that exercise, I mean, I have seen it literally break through such, like, some of the more cynical individuals on the team. Because at the end of the day, you can have these cynical individuals and people that are struggling. And the, the thing is, is being told thank you feels really good. Like, no one hates that no one not really you know i mean you've got to be pretty broken if you're kind of if you're so kind of like said that if someone genuinely thanks you for the time you spent that that you feel you know i don't know you feel like hating them or more or something no you'll sit there and you're like i really want to hate you right now but i can't because you just said thank you and i there's there's some little ice that's just melting inside me right now and and uh, you know why i don't understand i never want to hug people why do i want to hug you i'm sure it's like this kind of deep inner conflict but the, the other thing that i i've done a lot and again um social cohesion is really important so this is what builds empathy and empathy is the heart of all of this is a thing it's actually a management 3.0 practice called personal maps mm-hmm. um so i i've just in fact funnily enough literally just before I, uh, I gave my talk today, I set some homework for the team in Ford because I'm going to be back there in two weeks and I would like them to have done this. Uh, and you do a personal map. This is a mind map where you put your name in the middle and you then span out and talk about stuff to do with you. Um, and then as a group, you share them, basically. In the retrospective, you will have conversations and people will share them. Now, it, what's wonderful about it as an exercise is that you really realize that often you know very little about your team um and an interesting example funny enough specifically looking at diversity um where it's kind of building this empathy was important it was a, a number of years ago a lot of my work was involved and it's funny we're sat in uh, india now was involved in uh, helping companies that would ring me up and say john uh, we need some help. We we uh, we accidentally outsourced all our software to uh, an Indian development house, and it's all going wrong. What's going on? You know, everything's gone wrong. I don't understand what's happened. And um, and I'd go along. And this particular company, uh, they had a team of four engineers in London, and they had a team of eight that they had basically expanded their team by hiring in in India, in Mumbai in this case, and. And they, they were, you know, they listed a long list of problems. I mean, a lot of the problems you see in most struggling software teams, they had issues with technical debt, that there was 
very uh, kind of issues with the Indian team taking a long time to deliver things. It was all of these kind of challenges that they were having. Uh, they were obviously all interestingly. It was you know the, the UK team were great. The Indian team was all it was all their problem. Um, the Asundimba. It was uh, it was a that was pretty palpable, and uh, and I remember I I sat in. I arrived actually, and I said hello to the manager. He said, "Oh, the team are just in. They're actually on a conference call with the Indian team right now. Why don't you just, yeah just go in?" And so I just went in and said, "Hi, sorry, my name's John. Don't don't mind me. I'm just going to just sit in and observe just for a minute. We'll we'll chat more about what I'm doing." And I was only oh, it was maybe half an hour, and it just I was listening to this, and you could hear this very obvious abrasiveness in the tone of communication um, you could hear that on either side of the uh, on either side of this phone call there was very little um, there were very little listening very very little actual communication um, there was a lot of uh, people talking over each other people interrupting each other all of these things and and I and one of the things that it suddenly dawned to me I remember I I realized that none of the UK team referred to any of the people there by name they just said sorry who was could, who was the person speaking before uh, that, that one um, it, you know I so, so, so what what do you not understand about the web service specification that we've sent you like it was this this is the tone of the conversation I mean that was yeah, that was pretty tame compared to what, what was really being said in that meeting it's very toxic and one of the, what we did in the end so that I kind of I had a I had a few ideas that, that was that to sort of, well, it was pretty obvious there was what the issue was. But what we did was is we, we said, okay, look, what I'd like you to do, and I, I literally, I only had that day, they wanted me to come in and then I, I was going to be away for a couple of weeks. And I said, look, what I'd like you to do is a simple, simple rule, okay? For the next two weeks, I would like you to work um, pairing with, well, it was technically swarming or mobbing because there was eight on that side, but essentially every uh, UK person had two Indian people working with him and they rotated, okay? So every day they worked with a different a different pair essentially. And they worked, they spent the whole day, I said, when you're working, you pair, okay? And as it happened, they, so, and, that's, and that was the only rule really, was just, you need to collaborate. I think that will really help with communication. And that was, pretty much all I said we didn't have much time to explore too much I discussed some uh, kind of pairing mechanics and we went into some of the you know, technical uh, technical things kind of tools they could use to effectively remote pair but that was that was the kind of the end of that conversation so I come back in two weeks um, and I got in I don't know, 10 o'clock on this day and I just got in um, the manager I needed to speak to was in a meeting so I just went into the kitchen I was making myself a coffee and there were two of the English engineers who just sat in the kitchen area having a you know having a talk and one of them went yeah Mike did you know that Sandeep has a child he's, he's got a boy the same age as my boy and that was the first bit of the I said said yeah um, I, I've been working a lot with uh, with Rohit and he said it's so funny you know we both were we both were massive uh, quake addicts and one of the guys had realized that back in the day of uh, kind of the early days of the kind of very early days of kind of the prop the first uh, proper online gaming um, they had actually uh, they had actually played they were on op opposing teams like clans or whatever back in the day uh, and they had they had against each other they kind of random coincidence you know it's a very small world as we discover so they'd they'd discovered all of these little details and this was just from pairing uh, I mean pairing is or forget showing appreciation pairing is something I'm exceptionally passionate about with teams as well but they uh, and what was this interesting thing is is that they suddenly had 
empathy for the for the other person and I can not even tell you that the manager kind of came out and he, he saw me and kind of this big smile on his face he thought I'd worked some kind of crazy voodoo magic you know he was like I don't understand you were here for about three hours last week you know in two weeks and this last two weeks I feel like they the teams have delivered more than I've ever seen you know on, on either side and, and it was a really interesting thing. Uh, I didn't realize it would be, I was kind of surprised because, you know, I, I didn't have enough time and that was literally like, okay, well, I don't have time to do a lot of things I'd like to do, but just do that. Just try that for two weeks. We'll see what happens, you know. Um, and uh, one of the, now that this uh, team, they actually spend a year, um, every year, once a year, the English team goes to Mumbai and they work with the team for a couple of weeks there and then they come back again. And they did have the Indian team come over, but because there was eight of them, uh, <laughs> it was just a, a budgetary thing. You know, they were just like, well, flying eight people and putting them up in London compared with flying four British people and putting them up in Mumbai. Uh, the costs are there but what what was happening is basically it meant that the UK team went over um, I think it was twice a year they now they then went over so every kind of every six months they would spend a week or two weeks over there and they're really good friends in fact one of the the, the last time it's only uh, about six months ago I, I just you know you kind of check in occasionally when you've had certain they're the nice success stories it's kind of nice maybe it's just ego stroking on my part but it's always nice when you've had to kind of like these nice stories it's checked in one of the uh, he said that the uh, I, I was because um, oh, I was I was in uh, London and I was kind of near their office and I kind of called in to say hello and and uh, two of the engineers weren't there and it's because they were in India on holiday uh, attending a wedding of one of the other engineers that they had been invited to that to me is the is the kind of the real essence of this is that when it comes to diversity and is that we find diversity threatening not because we have some moral you know objection you know we're we're kind of we find race morally objectionable or we find you know uh, the <laughs> homosexuality objectionable not really that that's not what we that's not the challenges we have it's actually it's actually a fear of, of complexity and the fear of uh, that those things so we find human beings are really messy you know we're messy we're broken in many ways not just our cognitive biases and a whole other reasons why we're broken and screwed up uh, we do kind of annoying things like you know we we take time off and we get sick and we screw up um, and we you know have hangovers and we we do stuff like that which is just just really really annoying uh, from a project management perspective it's so bloody annoying and we do all of these things and actually we don't talk about those at all so i i often describe uh, i'm going to say well you know the, you know what's the the biggest risk i'll say to the, the audience and the talk you know, what's the biggest risk do you think the one thing that is the biggest risk to us delivering any project ever okay that that will that will be more risky than anything that you might come up with and you know people will kind of try and say various things on it's it's software complexity or it's blah 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 they'll they'll say no it's it's the people okay the human beings on your team are by an almost infinite amount more likely to to break your project than anything and that's not because of any deliberate uh you know <laughs> any deliberate kind of uh, intent yeah, no malice in no malice at all it's just humanity it's humanity it's it's because but the reason why it's risky is actually because we don't address it so for example you might have a, a female member on your team and because of the fact that she's worried about being discriminated against if she tells you that she's pregnant 
she might not tell you until as until she literally can't hide it anymore at which point she's saying i'm going to be off for maybe six months next week next week yeah <laughs> exactly and there's not much you can do about that but had she spoken to you about it three months beforehand you could have worked with her to find a temporary replacement you could have worked with her on how to make her job sustainable on her return does she want to come back and you can have that conversation without the um without the weight of if i if, if she says she doesn't want to come back are we just going to fight is that just going to fire me right now or we get no you support the needs of the people that are there and that goes far further i think pregnancy is an easy one to, to talk about it's a very common and kind of well understood challenge but it goes to other areas it's also things just like you know as a not a woman getting pregnant but what about you know these days what about you know i'm a, a part-time single dad i'm, I'm separated from my partner and, and i don't work mondays I just don't, you know, unless I happen to be in India or wherever else. But generally, I won't work Mondays because I spend that day with my kids. Now, that means I have to find an employer that's willing for me not to work Mondays. It's not really a massive ask in the big scheme of things, but it it can be for some companies. Mm. One of the, the um, an interesting thing I discuss is I spent some time with ThoughtWorks um, as part of research for this this talk. And one of the things they will say is, is you know, as, as much as it is feasible and they put priority on the human need here, not the kind of commercial feasibility, they will make flexible hours work. And why would they do that? Why would they, you know, because actually if you've had an employee with your organization for 10 years, they take a few weeks off after having a baby and they come back and say, you know what, I really want to spend, I, I want to do a four day week. I want to spend more time with my family. And you say, sorry, we just can't make that work. It's, it's unbelievably expensive for you as, an, you as an organization. It's shockingly, shockingly expensive. The costs, I think, if you hire someone, if you make a mishire and they've been with your organization just six months, it will cost something like two times their annual salary to your organization, both in the lost knowledge and also the ongoing recruitment cost to replace that person and other things. It's a, it's a massive cost. And two times the salary after six months, imagine that after a decade or, or, uh, you know, or more. So yeah, it's one of those areas that if you address human beings and you address their needs, and that does not mean labeling them and saying this person is a woman, so they must have womanly needs, or this person is a, a bearded man, so he must have half a day of grooming time, which is true, obviously, um, on, a, on a weekly basis, or, or this person is black, so who knows what needs they might have separate from other, you know, it's not about that. It's about looking at a human being and saying, what does this, how can this organization best support this individual's needs? I think it's a valid analogy, but it, I don't mean it to sound as, uh, as mechanistic as it sounds is if you buy a car okay you're to get the most value out of your car you need to deal with its needs okay so it might have needs servicing repairing keeping it up to scratch uh, replacing the bits that fall off you know etc you know and um and hopefully you're not replacing the bits that fall off your staff members i mean it depends on the kind of work i guess um but if you're uh, but actually the that, that that is true for people if you want to get the most value out of your people then you see to their needs we just heard Bjarte you know he was talking about how you know you you hire people and you put a massive amount of priority on on development on learning say yeah you can go on as, to as many conferences as you like on an annual basis you just have to be transparent about how much you're spending when you do that it's really 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 important I, I can tell you from a recruitment perspective if I was uh, um, a something I've just been discussing with a an old client and and my current client 
Um, every client, they're always trying to recruit. They're always trying to hire. Every you know, there's always a skills shortage everywhere. If you want to hire people, if you put even that, even the tiniest amount of money into sponsoring a conference, so you can have a little stand that says you're there. That the message that gives to the right kind of people, because the people that go to conferences are people that want to learn, they want to develop. It means so much because that tells a that tells people that 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 company cares about their development. If you send your people to conferences and say, you know, look, we would love you to go to the conference, but but speak to people and tell them that you're from Ford or IBM or ThoughtWorks. Tell them about you know that that this is something that you get and have them be your. And you know what? Engage staff members, and this is how you build engagement. You see to people's needs, you listen to people, you support their growth. Engage staff members, do your marketing for you. Once you actually support the agency, the people that are are at conferences, these people you send to conferences, they are your marketing machine. They will bring people in. No one, you know, you don't see people like, you, you know, we talk about like not having the right kinds of candidates, but then you look at companies like. Facebook and Google and companies that have a kind of a very open policy with regards to kind of how they, you know, they're very open about the, the kind of culture they're trying to create within the organisation, and those companies have no lack of candidates, like none. Okay, they have hundreds of candidates applying for their roles uh, because people want to work there. If people don't appear to want to work in your organisation, then you've got to ask why. Uh, exactly, and I think that's that's a really important important thing. And you'll find as well, interestingly, that uh, a lot of companies that have those issues, they seem to have far more conversations about money with their candidates. It's far more about negotiating the right rate for contractors or the right salary and all of these things. And it's sort of like, so like interestingly, if people really want to work for your organisation, they don't negotiate and things like that. They they one you know they will to to some degree, and they should you know they make sure their needs are met. But that's a very different conversation to if I'm going to work here, then I'm going to need to be paid a lot of money to do it, and that's what goes through some people's minds. Yeah. Uh, it's like yeah, that's fine. This is interesting, but their rates are going to have to be big to have me stay more than a few months, you know, and 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 that's what it comes down to for some people, and and that's that's actually where you get the kind of a the cynicism that you can get through the kind of often cynicism you see in kind of that kind of that contractor's attitude is kind of from that you know they'll stay and they don't care that much about the environment because they're just getting their salary they're getting their paycheck and you'll see in companies where the environment's kind of toxic um the percentage of ratio of contractors to mm-hmm. perm staff is is a very high level and that's actually simply because people don't stay you know and weirdly contractors even though they're meant to be temporary do stay (laughs) (laughs) and you'll often find it's like oh so so almost all of uh i've been to companies where almost all of the people that had been in the organization longer than 12 months were contractors you know um which is is a worrying thing it's like wait a sec so your temporary staff stay longer than your permanent staff (laughs) (laughs) which is a uh yeah which is which is quite a harsh judgment the universe is judging you in that context really interesting stuff (laughs) some fascinating topics and and some great advice in there so i would just like to say we appreciate your sharing this stuff with us thank you